Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In part one of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview, William Zelmer talks with Edward Lee and James Stevenson regarding the status of biosimilars in the European Union and United States. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by independent educational grants from Boringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sandoz, a Novartis company. It is available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash biosimsnow or via iTunes as a podcast. This is William Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts. I'm speaking with Edward Lee and James Stevenson, who presented a session on biosimilars at the 2015 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting. Ed is Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at the University of New England College of Pharmacy in Portland, Maine. Jim is Professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy in Ann Arbor, as well as President of Hospital and Health System Services for Visant Incorporated. Ed, let's start by defining biosimilars. You mentioned in the ASHB Symposium that you preferred the definition of the European Medicines Agency over that of the Food and Drug Administration. Well, what is EMA's definition and why is that your preference? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd like to begin by first by saying that they're essentially saying the same exact thing, but the European Medicine Agency's definition is just a little bit more specific. And what I mean by this is that the FDA gives you the final endpoint of what a biosimilar should be. So it should be highly similar with no clinically meaningful differences. The EMA definition goes one step further in terms of talking about how to actually get to that bar. And so their specific language says that this is based off of a demonstration of the similarity in physiochemical characteristics, efficacy, and safety based on a comprehensive comparability exercise. And I think that's really important as we talk about biosimilars, that they are explicitly compared to the reference product. They're highly similar, and this is a very extensive comparability exercise. Well, as sort of a, an additional baseline for our discussion, Ed, could you give us a sense of the big picture trends with respect to the development of biopharmaceuticals in relation to the overall release of new drug products? Sure. I think as pharmacists, we're all aware that more and more products and medications that we're dispensing and seeing on patient profiles is turning into the specialty arena. And a lot of that includes biologic medications as well. There was a recent Express Scripts analysis that looked at the number of products in the pipeline, and about one-third of those products are uh, biologics. That's expected to increase by about 20% annually, so that by about 2025, we could be looking at three out of every four new approvals being biologics. So there's no doubt that these biologics have conferred a really great benefit to our patients in terms of the outcomes that we're looking for. And because of that, more and more of these molecules are being developed, and we should prepare for that type of situation. Well, if we think about uh, biosimilars specifically, I'd uh, be very interested in having each of you discuss briefly uh, your own personal journey with respect to building your interest and knowledge uh, on this topic. Jim, I'd appreciate hearing your comment on this. Sure. Yeah, as uh, Ed had just mentioned, 
the growth in the biologics area is uh, very profound. And as someone who's been involved in managing uh, formularies and uh, drug budgets within health systems, the importance of biologics has increased over time. And when the Affordable Care Act allowed this abbreviated pathway for biosimilars, it was something that I became very interested in as a way to help control costs within our health system and improve access to these important drugs uh, for our patients. And at the same time, I was familiar that a similar experience has been going on in Europe, and I thought there was a lot to learn from the European experience as well. So that's really led to my uh, interest in, in learning much more about biosimilars. Ed, what's your story in this regard? Yeah, my story begins with uh, that classic hallway discussion at your organization. So this was uh, during the time when I was working at NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, and I started to get involved in various uh, policy projects there. And we were talking about the Affordable Care Act and some of the provisions in there. And one of the other NCCN staff members said, hey, did you hear about this concept of biosimilars? And, you know, this is going to be pretty impactful to oncology practice. And, and so we looked at it a little bit closer and realized how transformative this was actually going to be once the FDA had uh, established their pathway and once we started getting these products on the market. So that spurred us to, to actually put together a work group of various stakeholders from industry, from payers, from provider uh, stakeholders, physicians, pharmacists, nurses, and we put together a work group that discussed kind of where we are with biosimilars, uh, what we want from them in the future, and what the current issues are revolving biosimilars. And that paper was published in 2011. And I think, you know, one of our biggest recommendations there was that you know, we, we just need more education on biosimilars because we did a little bit of survey data that saw that not too many people were familiar with biosimilars. You know, I think from my personal journey, my education level with biosimilars started out as not really knowing a lot and being a little bit hesitant about what these products really mean towards one of now understanding how these are approved and being comfortable with these products. Well, Ed, uh, in the ASHP symposium, you detailed the FDA process for reviewing and licensing biologics. Uh, as a reminder for listeners, could you comment on the period of market exclusivity certainly for biologic products, but also then for biosimilars in the new pathway. Sure. If we uh, remember back to the Affordable Care Act and the discussions and the debates with the Affordable Care Act, one of the things that was being debated was what is the actual timeline of exclusivity for biologics, new biologics that would be approved. Uh, so these are the originator, the reference products, and it finally settled on 12 years of exclusivity for newly approved biologics where a biosimilar cannot be approved within that time frame after that new biologic is approved. Now for biosimilars, uh, a biosimilar actually does not have any period of exclusivity, so you could get Get a few biosimilars approved at the same time to one specific reference product. The caveat for that is that if there is an interchangeable biosimilar that is approved, the interchangeability designation gets one year of exclusivity. So that provides a little bit of a, a carrot for biosimilar manufacturers to produce interchangeable biosimilars. Okay. Jim, a number of biosimilars have been available in Europe now for several years. How has it come to be that Europe seems to be ahead of the United States in this regard? Well, the regulations for biosimilar approval occurred much earlier in Europe. So actually, right around 2005, 
the European Medicines Agency developed guidelines for an abbreviated pathway for the approval of biosimilars in Europe. And it wasn't until, uh, as we mentioned, the Accountable Care Act in, in 2010 that in the U.S. Um, the FDA was directed to develop an abbreviated pathway. So we had a, a later start there. As I said, the European regulations were developed in 2005, and the first biosimilar in Europe occurred in 2006. So they have almost 10 years of experience with biosimilars in Europe, uh, whereas we've, we've just had the first biosimilar approved here in the United States. Jim, uh, about how many biosimilars are on the market in the European area? There's a lot that can be learned from the European experience. There's currently 19 biosimilar products on the market in Europe. They fall into several categories. There's human growth hormone, filgrastin products, there's epoetin products, and most recently, two uh, monoclonal antibodies, two infliximab products, have been uh, approved in Europe. So over this last almost almost 10 years, there's been pretty substantial experience with a, a variety of different uh, biologic products. And I think the thing that we can really feel good about is within the uh, scope that the EMA has created uh, biosimilars and the experience that they've had in Europe, the experience has been very good. Um, there haven't been any uh, biosimilars that have been approved in Europe that have had to be withdrawn from the market due to any uh, specific safety or efficacy concerns. Jim, do you anticipate that the experience now in the United States uh, will be similar to that in Europe with respect to sort of the pace of biosimilars being uh, approved? You know, that's it's hard to tell exactly uh, about the pace, but I think certainly because the FDA is adopting a regulatory process that's similar to the uh, EMA, I think that will help accelerate the process here. And I think if you look at the products, we have one Phil Graston biosimilar that's currently on the market, but uh, there's a number of other products that are already filed and being considered by the FDA. There's another uh, Phil Graston product being considered. Peg Phil Graston is being uh, considered. There are also applications in for infliximab, epoetin, etanercept, and adalimumab. So a number of products that have already gone through the EMA regulatory process are currently being considered. And then some other monoclonal antibodies that haven't been approved yet in the EMA are already being considered by the FDA. Mm -hmm. So I do think it'll be somewhat accelerated based on the fact that some of this has already been covered okay. by the EMA. Well, Ed, we all know, of course, that innovator biopharmaceuticals tend to be very expensive. Uh, as more biosimilars come on the market, uh, what is the magnitude of savings that can be anticipated in the United States? If we talk about taking the European experience and trying to apply that to the U.S. or uh, extrapolating you know, what could be the future of the U.S., we see typical price reductions of 10 to 35 percent for biosimilars compared to the reference product. That's not the 80% or so that we're used to with generic drugs, but uh, still 10 to 35% of a large number is still a very large number. Going back to the Express Scripts analysis, they, they predict that by 2024, if we just looked at 11 existing biologic drugs, uh, the reference biologic drugs that we have in the United States that 
could go biosimilars in the next few years. They are expecting about $250 billion of savings to the U.S. healthcare system by 2024. So if we had biosimilars just for those 11 drugs, we could save a significant amount of money in the U.S. healthcare system. Right. That's a very impressive figure. Jim, will biosimilars generally have the same FDA-approved indications as the reference products? Yeah, that's a good question, Bill. I think in most cases, the biosimilars will be approved with the same uh, FDA-approved indications. This gets into an area that's referred to as extrapolation. Because the approval process is an abbreviated process, that means that the biosimilar manufacturer is not submitting data on clinical trials across all the different indications. Basically, the FDA is to make a decision as to whether or not if the biosimilar acts like the reference product in one indication, do they feel comfortable extrapolating it across other indications for which the reference product is approved. And I think in most cases, that will probably be the case. But the FDA does have the ability to approve a biosimilar for fewer indications if they feel there's some reason that perhaps there's just not enough data to feel comfortable with that extrapolation. You know, for some of the early biologics and biosimilars like uh, filgrastim or epoetin, there's a clear biomarker that we can look at to tell how the biologic is working. So in the case of epoetin, we have hemoglobin and hematocrit. In the case of filgrastim, we have uh, the neutrophil count. And so that makes it, I think, much easier to extrapolate and uh, across a number of indications. With some of the more complex biologics where perhaps the mechanism of action isn't as clearly uh, known or it may differ somewhat from indication to indication, that may create some sense of uncertainty that, that could potentially allow the FDA to uh, approve for fewer indications. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the nomenclature for biosimilar products. Jim, where does that issue stand at the moment? Yeah, that one is one that uh, there's been a lot of comment about and then a lot of concern. There are many who have taken strong positions on how they think biosimilars should be named. There's one camp who says in order to encourage the use of biosimilars and make them more accessible, they should have the same name as the reference product. There's another camp that says because pharmacovigilance or post-marketing surveillance is important and we have to be able to differentiate between these products, it's important that they have somewhat different names. And so the FDA came out with some proposed guidance earlier this year, and what they proposed is that the uh, biosimilar will have the same international uh, non-proprietary name, or INN, followed by a four-letter suffix that they say is devoid of meaning. And so, for example, the first biosimilar that came out was filgrastim with a suffix S-N-D-Z, which presumably stands for Sandoz, the manufacturer. So they did use the I-N-N plus the uh, four-letter suffix, but in the case of first biosimilar, the, the suffix actually did have meaning. The FDA has now said it should be devoid of meaning. So it would potentially come out as filgrastim and then four letters that don't really have any meaning. From my personal perspective, I think that that's very problematic. Having a suffix and potentially having multiple biologics 
within an area that have uh, suffixes that are devoid of meaning will actually cause more confusion and potentially harm pharmacovigilance uh, efforts. I know a number of uh, organizations have provided commentary to the FDA asking them to reconsider that guidance, and we expect that there will be finalization of the guidance in 2016. Well, Ed, uh, Jim has mentioned the post-marketing surveillance issue here. Uh, What do you anticipate the situation will be with respect to distribution and post-marketing surveillance requirements for biosimilars? First, I'd like to just go back and talk about why this post-market surveillance is important, this pharmacovigilance, so to speak. And it's related to the fact that all biologics, regardless of whether or not it's a reference or a biosimilar, has a chance for immunogenic reaction. So immunogenicity is a big deal with all biologics. Problem occurs if you have a manufacturing change that could cause some differences in the end molecule that may translate into differences in immunogenicity. And the immunogenicity assessment is probably the most difficult part of the entire uh, biologics assessment program. So I'm not singling out biosimilars, so to speak, but I'm talking about reference biologics as well. And the challenge comes when you have an adverse effect that affects a very small number of patients. How do you actually understand what the epidemiology of that effect would be in actual real-world patients? And how do you identify that through the uh, registration trials of, you know, maybe 200 or maximum 400 patients uh, per trial. It's incredibly hard to do, and and some would say that you you can't do it altogether. So you have to rely on this real-world experience, this post-marketing experience, to truly understand what the patterns are with that type of reaction, to understand and compare, you know, is there something about the biosimilar that's different from the reference product? It actually may be the case that for some reason, maybe related to the excipients or something like that, that the biosimilar actually has a lower rate of adverse reactions. That could be the case, but we're just you know, not sure of that until we actually use these products in, in our patients. So to understand then the epidemiology of these reactions, we need people to report on these adverse effects. And to report on the adverse effects means that we need to contribute the adverse effect to the correct manufacturer of the product. That concludes part one of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview. For part two of this interview, which focuses on interchangeability and the integration of biosimilars into the medication use system, visit www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash biosimsnow or access it via iTunes as a podcast. Other educational resources on this topic are also available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash biosimsnow.